also it turns out that stress makes people quite a lot more impatient and present biased than they otherwise would be and it makes them more risk averse and so if you're living in a low income context uh, and you're supposed to make investments in health and education and long-term outcomes like that that may not be a good thing and if you're supposed to you know make a go of it in a business that may also not be a good thing to be very risk averse that was the voice of Johannes Haushofer, the founder of the Busara Institute in Nairobi, Kenya. He's making a case that people who live in low-income situations face some really big challenges when it comes to making long-term investments in their well-being. He notes that if your income is really low, your brain primarily focuses on what you need to get done today, which makes planning for the future really hard. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about in this episode. And with that, Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Kurt and I are using this episode to groove on the conversation we had with the researcher and Busara Institute founder, Johannes Haushofer. If you've already listened to our interview episode, you'll know that Johannes is a multi-talented researcher and musician, which made the conversation all the more interesting for me. Yeah, me too, actually. You know, most (laughs) of the time you get to talk all the music, but this was fun. This was really good. But mostly... But mostly our conversation with Johannes, we talked about him and the relationship between poverty and subjective well-being and how it is that given people a basic income doesn't give them a license to indulge. In fact, they tend to be pretty conservative and not waste what they've received. You can hear all of what we had to say in our past interview episode with Johannes. Yeah, but right now it's time to get into what we, Kurt and I, thought about the conversation with Johannes. Excellent. So let's discuss what we learned, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our non-depraved poverty minds. Because, Tim, you and I, we are nowhere near that poverty level. Yeah, man. Yeah. And and we don't – it's hard to even imagine what that would be like to put ourselves in somebody's shoes who is worried about how are they going to get their next meal tomorrow? How are they going to cover and pay for rent or their mortgage or whatever that would be? Because that's a very different world than what you and I live in. So totally different. It's very, very difficult for me to understand what it would be like to be suffering from diabetes where you're and you're living on the street and you don't have a, a place for, of cold storage to store your diabetes mes- medicine, for instance. Yeah. Like, what the hell is that like? I don't know. That that's just kind of crazy. I, I wanted to start our grooving session, if if that's okay, on this idea of the relationship between poverty and subjective well-being, right? Because this is such an important thing for us to, especially outside of, uh, as as you as you teed up, if we're not living in it, we need to develop more compassion. We need to develop more understanding of it. And I'm so grateful that Johannes is 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 doing this. But but he he noted he said. Rich people are happier than poor people within the same country, but also richer countries on average are happier than poor companies. So he starts to debunk this idea that once you get to $75,000 in income, you're good. And, and, and I think we should just start start right there. Which is fascinating because the popular discussion on this has been this idea that, well, up to 70,000, 75,000, 80,000, whatever that level is, that yes, happiness improves and people's well being improves. But that after that, 
additional money doesn't make a difference. But he he brings in some other research that points to the idea that subjective well-being, which is not necessarily an exact measure of happiness, does increase the more money we make. So it isn't this idea that, hey, after $75,000, more money doesn't really impact our how well we live our lives. It does. It makes uh, an impact. So somebody making 75000 versus somebody who makes 250000 the $250,000 on average, based upon this research, have higher subjective well-being. Now, again, any individual case is going to be different. That being said, uh, that's kind of interesting. I think I think it was really interesting. And he was he referenced that work from uh, Betsy Stevenson and Jason Wolfers several times. And I'm really glad he did because it's brought more nuance to the conversation, right? Because that, that old benchmark from Kahneman's study needs to be debunked. I think yeah. we need to kind of tackle that and say it's it, it is a real thing that the people who are making $250,000 are actually somewhat happier than those making $75,000. Now, now, granted, and he talks about this, that the, the, slope, the increase in happiness or subjective well-being is significantly steeper. Like if you're going from 15,000 to 30,000, that's a hell of a lot better than going from 75,000 to 90,000, right? The, the, again, relative versus absolutes. And we talk about that often in, in the show, but this idea that, you know, people living in poverty will be subjectively better if they get more income, I think is a key piece. And it goes back to some of the things that we've talked about before, like a universal basic income. All right. Is is that a good policy to implement? Because we know this, because we know when people are in poverty, A, one, their cognitive functioning isn't as what you can lose up to a number of IQ points by just being in poverty because your your mind is so focused in on what you need to do the next day and various different aspects that it doesn't have time to process things in a, in a more holistic way. Creativity is decreased. We know that stress is increased. So a number of these factors, health is impacted. You are more likely to be sick because you are in poverty. Just from that, that is a causal relationship. And those are key things. So if you implement a universal basic income, you can alleviate many, many of these ailments that we face as a society, whether that be in Kenya or whether that be in the United States, it is a key piece that I think needs more discussion and more thought about from people who are controlling these kind of things. I'm really glad you brought up the universal basic income because I've always been I shouldn't say always, but I've been curious about it in, in recent years, right? You're, you're a big Andrew Yang fan. He was a big advocate of that during the, the, the presidential primaries. And I was curious and open-minded to it. It wasn't until Johannes made the point that we have research that says when people are, are given a basic income, they don't go out and they, they, they don't spend it on alcohol. They, in fact, they're, they're un unlikely to stop working. They're going to keep working. Because this is this is kind of who we are, right? It's ingrained into into who we are. Basically, our habits don't just fall off the the apple cart when we start getting an income. And I think that it's really interesting to think about how important it is to take some of that stress away from basic basic life, from day to day life, with a basic income, with 
provide someone with a little bit of integrity and respect yeah. and allow them to to not have to worry about every next decision that, that's, yeah. that needs to be made. It opens up that time horizon for them. The yeah. idea of being able to plan for the future, which was one of the other things that he talked yes. about, this idea that poverty restricts the time horizon that we look out at because we have to, because you have to figure out how am I going to eat tomorrow? How am I going to, you know, pay that rent? All of those factors. So, and I think you've talked about this in prior to, to getting on, on the show is this idea of, you know, pulling your, yourself up by your bootstraps, this idea that, well, everybody look, you know, these, these stories that we have of people who have come from nothing and become rich and millionaires is this pervasive story and narrative that we have, particularly in some segments of the of society. But there is a limit to that. Yes, there are those individual stories, but on average, being in poverty restricts you from even being able to think about that because as we said, all of these other factors that are coming into play. So being poor is one hit against you. You're already starting well behind the starting line if you're in a race and you're not going to be able to catch up. Most people aren't going to be able to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Johannes uh, even said it so nicely that he said, if you're living in, in a low income context and you're supposed to make investments and health and education and long-term outcome decisions, you just aren't going to be able to do so. You just, you just can't do that when you're trying to figure out how, if I'm a diabetic, how am I going to uh, keep the medicine that I need cold yeah. when I'm living on the street? That's a big damn problem to solve. Yeah. You know, that, that's a big damn problem to and solve. And it's taking up a lot of my mental functioning and it's taking up a lot of my processing power within there so that I don't have time or energy or the resources or the mental capacity to be able to do that and think about other things that are going to impact my life on a longer term positive trajectory. It is how do I get through today? How do me and I how do I make it so that my me and my family survive? Yeah. And past that, I'm lucky to be able to to take a, a deep breath and think through that. So the implications for this. Obviously, what this details is that for a policy and the the idea of what organizations and what governments can do, we really need to be thinking about this alleviation of poverty and potentially bringing in a concept of universal basic income that says, hey, at, at minimum, everybody has this so that they can at least get past some of those stresses that are limiting and creating that scarcity model within our brain. Yeah. And I just like to double down that it's not, I wouldn't agree that universal basic income is the panacea that no. it's, 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 and you're not suggesting that, but just to be clear, uh, it's not the solution to all of our ills, but I'd love to see how much good it could do. That would yeah. be, it would be really cool to kind of see, let's give it a try and see if we can, you know, raise the tide and lift all the ships. Well, and I think the impact that comes from this is exactly what you mentioned about you were curious about universal basic income, but still had some concerns, particularly as it relates to motivation and different things. And I think a number of the aspects of people putting up roadblocks are based on this false belief that if you just give people money, they're not going to go out and work or do whatever they're going to spend it frivolously on alcohol and drugs and whatever else. And that isn't backed up 
by the research that in fact that people who live in that scarcity, even when they get these windfalls, tend to be more conservative in their spending of it and utilize it to help them break out of the poverty cycle. And I think that's key. Excellent. We did have a little bit of a discussion about the replication crisis with Johannes. The replication crisis? What What's replication that? crisis? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Is there a replication <laughs> crisis? So this is a bit academic, right? Lacking specific policy implications. But I wanted to get your thoughts about, you know, he was kind of saying it's a problem. You know, that that uh, maybe there's not enough, and I'm paraphrasing, maybe there's just not enough rigor in, in some of these uh, some of these studies. What, what did you think about that, Kurt? Yeah, I think it is interesting. I go back to our conversation with uh, Richard Nisbet, right? Uh, this idea that given this study, if as long as there wasn't fraud that or they didn't do bad math in it, that, hey, this happened, right? If you're a ethical, valid researcher and you have a group of 50 people in a room and you get a certain result from that, that's that's that happened there and then. And if you can't replicate it, there are oftentimes many different reasons for that. Oftentimes it be, is because that replication isn't exactly the same as the first experiment, that the experiment is slightly different. The room is different. The number of things we talk about priming all the time and you can get different aspects, which just means from my perspective, this is my view on this. And I'm sure if anybody's listening, they already know what I'm going to say is that the replication crisis isn't that it's actually just giving us more information about the generalization or generalizability of that study. So in other words, yeah, it worked in that context, in that situation at that point in time, but it may not be generalizable out to a larger audience, even if it's a very similar audience and the context is pretty much the same, which is information that we learn. So great, let's not take it, but let's not then go, oh, every study that is in involves priming or it involves, you know, any of the psychological aspects that have been pushed back, we got to throw those out. I don't agree with that. You, yeah, you brought up a Nisbet and didn't he talk about the insomnia study and uh, it had to do with, and, and how it, he went years and years and years without that study being replicated uh, until somebody comes uh, and, and does a, a similar study and replicates and realizes that it had something to do specifically with the people who are in the study. Now, right. so with that, right, Nisbet did that at Yale and with, uh, again, university students at Yale and the the other, and I can't remember who the researcher was that came back and, and, and replicated it, but he had done this thing with this need for cognition and yeah. saying, look, the people who, again, the, the study was something, forgive me for, for misremembering this, this idea that if you let people understand why they're having these insomniac feelings and the the aspects of this, they can fall asleep easier. And so their their cognition, they're they're thinking about the, the what's going on in their body, and therefore they're better able to dismiss that this is from insomnia and actually it's from this pill that I'm having. So therefore I'm more likely to fall asleep. When those were repeated in different places, the idea that Nisbet brings up is, look, we didn't understand this need for cognition, this need that people, some right. people have. 
and he just made this uh well they're 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 college students and so they should be similar well you know college students at you know at yale at yale average. are going to be different and and at that point it was mostly men and different pieces at yale and so there's a there's that aspect and so now because they have replicated it with this need for cognition aspect that lends some really interesting insight so it isn't a failure of replication it's a further understanding of the phenomena and i think that's cool and with with all that i agree uh, we had a wonderful conversation with john barge about that and the idea of adding to the literature with more more testing and not being so quick to try to generalize everything the media is going to try to generalize everything but within academia i think I think that the researchers need to hold back on on the generalization, maybe yeah. more strongly than they are now. At the same time, I think that there's also a little bit of us versus them. I do feel like in recent conversations we've had with uh, economists and psychologists that the psychologists like to say, well, look, you know, we're, you know, there's a whole bunch of different priming and different uh, aspects of this whole story. And of course, there's a, a variety of uh, abilities to replicate things, depending on how much psychology is involved in it. And the economists, I feel like, tend to say they kind of point fingers and say, "Well, there's just not enough rigor, you know. There's like you're just not paying enough attention because in, in economic studies, you know, there's much more specific, objective data that's being gathered. And I kind of wish, I kind of wish that the academia would just dial it down a little bit on the pointing fingers and the us versus them stuff. I think that that's a, a part of it. I, I would agree with that. I also agree with the economists to a certain degree that some of the rigor that went into some of these studies and the way that they were done small ends, you know, large oh, yeah. generalizations from a very specific research study led to this right that it was part of the reason that that we have what is this kind of replication aspect that is going on and gets press and different aspects that being said i still think that it is less of a replication crisis than it is of just let's let's find deeper understanding within this and i think i think things are moving better. I think there is, and there is a replication crisis when there is p-hacking and other factors that oh, are going yeah. on when people oh, are yeah. doing things specifically to find a phenomena that they want to find. Yeah. That being said, there isn't when it's general, you know, aspects and it just hasn't been replicated doesn't mean that that is wrong. So yeah, if you're motivated to find the Haushofer effect as, as Johannes talked about, well, that that's that's bad motivation. Yeah. But speaking of Johannes again, let's express a little bit of gratitude for him starting the Busara Center. Oh my for, gosh. Yeah. Right. Studying poverty where it exists the most. Not not from not in university classrooms, but actually going to Nairobi and setting up a center that uh, many many research uh, organizations and and for pro-social organizations can utilize to try to better understand what is it like to be in poverty and what are the interventions that can make a change? Well, and Busara Center is not only in in Nairobi, right? So they are doing studies around the around global the south, basically. Yep. And again, applying those elements into those studies that say, 
All right, does this effect apply here in this context, in this situation, with this cultural background that these people have versus, you know, your average white, rich male college student, which is a variety still to this day, most of the studies done are are based there because it's easy for researchers to get people in their psychology 101 class to get extra credit by going in and doing the study for them. And that's how most studies are done. And so it's great that they're doing that. And, you know, we talked with Channing Jang and, you know, he talked about some of the cool studies that they were doing in field with real people who are in these poverty type situations. And yeah, kudos, kudos to Johannes to, to, thinking I'm starting this and getting this going and then having it move forward. I also call out the fact that Johannes is very entrepreneurial. Like this is an entrepreneurial initiative to say, I want to go start something to, to do something different. It's not just, I'm, I'm a, he kind of frames it as, I just wanted to research this. I'm just concerned about this, but I think it's very entrepreneurial to actually go and staff up a space you know, and hire people and create an organization. That's uh, that's a uh, Allison Zelkowitz is doing the same thing at, at Save the uh, Save Our Children. You got to find funding. You have yeah. to hire staff. You have all these things. It's not just a university lab. You are looking oh. to find social issues that you are dealing with. Yeah, I think that is great. It's really, as you said, kind of. There's a, there's a lot of gratitude that needs to be put out for Johannes to be able to do this. And I'm wondering if more academic researchers would be interested in having some of that entrepreneurship. I mean, I know there's a lot that go and do consulting, mm-hmm. but are there many that have started nonprofits and gone out and done that or started businesses, hundred uh, percent businesses, not just solo, you know, consultants? I don't know. I can think of a business that was started out of, I think it was uh, Yale uh, or Princeton. It was uh, Honest Tea. It was some guys that wanted to, it was a couple of professors that actually wanted to create some really good tasting, you know, not super sweet tea. And then I also think from a pro-social perspective, there's uh, not just the Busara Center, but there are many examples of, of entrepreneurial academics that that start pro-social or for-profit organizations. I think that that's a fantastic thing. I, I, I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing. We should highlight some more of those. We, we could need to we find could. people. So if any of our listeners, if you, yeah. if you guys know of anybody, let us know. Cause we'd love to talk to more of those people. I think they're fascinating and interesting. All right, Tim. So let's wrap this up. So okay. everybody, thank you again for listening to our grooving session. And we hope you'll check out our next episode featuring the amazing author of the book, Everybody Lies. So Tim, Tim, I have to ask, does that mean <laughs> that we lie as well? I mean, I never, ever, ever lie, right? Well, except maybe for that time. And then there was those, okay, I guess, I guess maybe, maybe that's true. That was like Steve Martin did a routine many years ago where he said, I never smoke pot. Yeah. Except in the late afternoon. Or possibly in the early part of the late afternoon, or sometimes in the later part of the early afternoon, and sometimes in the morning, but I never smoke pot. <laughs> you know, we just, just got crazy. Okay. All right. So about never. Never is, we don't need to get into never. Everybody lies. But next week's episode does feature an interview and a grooving session on our conversation with Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. And we get into some 
pretty interesting rabbit holes around big data, sex, and dating life. Sex and dating life. Ooh, sounds fun. There you go. All right. So check out our newly updated website as well. We have got the entire library of episodes out there, all 230 plus of them. We have uh, some cool resources such as Tim's nerdy glossary of behavioral science terms. Oh, my God. If you haven't checked out Tim's nerdy glossary, you need to go and check out Tim's nerdy glossary, a place to sign up for alerts on new episodes. And we got some cool merch. You can actually get a behavioral grooves mug or a T-shirt with a quote on it or something like that. Some great swag that you're going to definitely want to wear to the next party that you go to because people are going to look at you and go, oh, you are smart. You are a cool person. That is awesome. So go out, check out our new Behavioral Grooves website. Uh, it's out there now. We we appreciate that. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, no, there is no or not. That's just like, no, everybody lies. There is no or not. There is everybody needs to go and do this. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope that the next week you rejoin us. And uh, but in the meantime, you go out and you find your group.